Hello, and welcome to Whole Brother Live, the Black Man's Vote. I'm Malik Blay, the CEO of the Whole Brother Mission. We're glad to have you. We are hosting this event, event under abnormal circumstances. Due to the pandemic, we're having to do this through the video conferencing, but nonetheless, we're glad to have this event, and we're glad to have you. We have two special guests who I think will have a lot to share with us tonight and hopefully inspire and uh, give you some additional information as you're looking into the political situation ahead of us uh, this year. We're wanting to share ideas and educate people. That's the ultimate goal of tonight's event. As I said, we have two special guests. First, Bakari Sellers, who is a political analyst for CNN and also an author, as well, Justin Gibney, who is the president of the Ann campaign, and they are both attorneys. I'm going to turn it over to them to share a little bit more about their political background. Justin, you can go first. Well, I appreciate that, Malik. Thanks for having me. And I must say I'm encouraged, brother, by uh, just the mission of what you're doing, this whole brother mission. So uh, thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for having me. Uh, in relation to my political uh, career, I guess it started, you know, I'm in Atlanta. Uh, after law school, I moved to Atlanta and kind of jumped into the political scene pretty quickly. Uh, I had a group of friends who used to always come together and talk about politics to debate this issue and that issue. And one day I looked around, I said, man, why are we being so academic about this? Might as well kind of hop off the porch and really get into it. And we ended up doing just that. We ended up working for a mayoral campaign of a state senator named Kasim Reed, who would later become a two-term mayor of Atlanta. Uh, and after that, uh, subsequent to that, I started running campaigns, local campaigns for candidates, uh, dealing with mostly water infrastructure, transportation infrastructure. For example, the last uh, one that I did was a vote on a sales tax to raise about $2.5 billion for Atlanta's transportation system. Uh, I, along with my good friend Justin Tanner, were co-chair of the Atlanta uh, chapter of Gen 44, uh, which was the which was Obama's young professional fundraising arm. And I guess it was 2012. We ended up raising almost a million dollars for Obama in Atlanta. Uh, I was a delegate at the Democratic National Convention in 2012 and 2016 in Congressman John Lewis's district. So that was an honor. But Malik, to be honest, I think the biggest asset or benefit to my political career wasn't even my academic background or even any of the legal expertise. Uh, I think it was really about having the opportunity to engage my city on a grassroots level. You know, I had some mentors from Atlanta City Councilman C.T. Martin, Tracy Reed, uh, Councilwoman Andrea Boone, who really helped me understand that academic knowledge and political smarts were two different things, uh, that they were acquired in two different arenas. I kind of went from being the good-off, fresh-out-of-academic bubble to realizing that I really had a whole lot to learn on the ground, and that was because of some of my mentors, and I really love those folks because they taught me that I had to love and serve the people first, that, you know, my whole view couldn't could just be about one political move or one move the next. It really had to be about the people and that I had to stand with the people and serve them before I would be qualified to lead. And so I think in a nutshell, that's kind of my political career up until this point. Got it. Thank you for that, Justin. Ricari, could you jump on in and give the audience a little background of your uh, political career as well? Well, first of all, thank you for having me and um, just a special shout out to everything that you're doing. Um, your efforts are, are nowhere near in vain um, and you are the fabric of making sure our community 
um, can move forward um, positively. So first of all, I always tell people that the two most important words in the English language are the words thank you, and they're not said enough. And so I just want to say thank you to you um, and your organization for all the work that they do. And to Justin, um, please give Tanner my best. Um, I know you have some good friends of mine down in, in the A, and I'm very appreciative of um, the polit political scene down there in Atlanta and uh, in your work that you're doing. I'm from the big city of Denmark, South Carolina, where we have three stoplights in Lincoln <laughs> Light. I went to Morehouse College at about 16 years old. I ran for uh, Lieutenant Governor. Um, well, before I ran for Lieutenant Governor, I ran for the State House um, at the age of 20. I ran for Lieutenant Governor at the age of, uh, of 30. Um, and in uh, June of 2015, uh, after one of my good friends, Clemente Pinckney, was murdered um, in his church with eight others, I was um, hired um, somewhat off the street by CNN to be a political commentator. Uh, I spent about a decade in ele elected politics, and now um, one of the things I realize um, being outside of politics is I am nowhere near as important as I thought I was. Um, it's a good moment of introspection for any elected official or former elected official to have. Um, and so. Um, I always tell people that I'm a child of the movement. My father was one of the founding members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, also known as SNCC. And so being a change agent is something that's always been in my blood. I just chose uh, electoral politics as a way to do that. And being the youngest black elected official and the youngest state legislator in the country, it was a unique opportunity to provide um, people of color, um, people from the poor rural South especially, um, a chance to hope um, and hopefully a chance to believe in uh, being a part of something larger than themselves. And so uh, thank you for this opportunity. And I'm happy to be here with you today. I thank you both for joining us on tonight. So we're going to jump in with some of the topics for tonight and some questions as well. But before we get deeper into it, I want to get a general understanding of where you kind of are politically. Now, oftentimes people just use labels that go as simple as I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, I'm a moderate, and that's the most you get. And if you do identify with one of those labels, you can answer this question with that. But I do want to get you to kind of unpack for us briefly, where do you fall within that spectrum? How would you label yourself? And if, if not a label, just an explanation of where you fall within the political spectrum. Uh, Bakar, you can go first. Um, I think that was directed to me. I, I would label myself as a, as a progressive um, Democrat, a, a liberal, um, somebody who believes in those progressive ideals and values, understanding that it's a big tent. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm more moderate, I, I believe, than, than some of my colleagues from um, maybe the West Coast or, or from uh, Massachusetts or New York. Um, but, you know, I, I firmly believe in uh, the legacies of, of uh, of JFK and LBJ, um, Clinton, uh, Obama, um, and look forward to hopefully having uh, um, the, Donald Trump only serving four years as president, to be completely honest with you. And so uh, I find myself on, on that um, side of the um, political framework. Um, and it's sometimes very frustrating. Democrats are proverbial bedwetters. Um, and uh, so, so we miss some of the easiest layups. Um, but I, I do believe um, that that is probably the best framework ideolo ideologically to, to place me in. Got it. Justin? 
Yeah, so uh, similarly, I'm, I've been a Democrat all my life. Uh, I do probably consider myself uh, somewhat of a lukewarm Democrat. And I say that because I'm not, you know, the kind of cat that's going to kind of defend the party at all costs. I don't find my identity in the party or anything like that. Uh, if you come to me with partisan party uh, talking points, but no real analysis, I'm not, I'm not going to be all that impressed. Um, and so I'd say that I'm, I'm fairly progressive um, or even populist when it comes to economic issues and justice issues, uh, but probably center right uh, when it comes to social issues. You know, I'm, I'm originally from Denver, Colorado, and so I grew up um, where, I, you know, I grew up looking up to elected officials like Mayor Wellington Webb, uh, Federico Pena, uh, state representative or state senator uh, Regis Groff. Uh, and these were leaders because they were men of color that I could kind of look up to and model myself after, after. You could tell they had a heart for the people. And I think for me, uh, that's what the Democratic Party has really represented in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, uh, something else is, you know, my, I had a grandfather who was a civil rights era preacher. Uh, and so that whole ethic of speaking the truth to power, uh, fighting for those who don't have a voice, uh, doing what's right, regardless of what the consequences are, was really ingrained in me just because I looked up to him so much. Uh, and I followed kind of uh, studied the civil rights movement so closely. I caught on to those things. But I have to say probably what had the biggest impact on my uh, political worldview was just being raised in the church. You know, um, it shaped my understanding of social interactions. It shaped my understanding of what was right and what was wrong. And I think I received what Christianity would have to say about politics and, and society a lot different than you would see some white evangelicals or Trump evangelicals, as they call them. You know, I didn't see the Bible as something that was used to beat people up or necessarily to judge them. Um, if that was the case, I, I would have been in, in huge trouble myself. I saw justice as a priority uh, and kind of had a, had a justice-centered political worldview. And so I understood the kind of the importance of providing people's, for people's needs, whether it be housing, food, education, uh, all of that to me was a priority. Uh, but I think what else the church added that makes me a little different probably than some Democrats, uh, but not a lot of black Christian Democrats, I think there are a lot that feel this way, is that we also saw the need for values, a moral anchor, and institutions. Uh, institutions like the family, the church, are vitally important, and they're one of those things that I don't think can be replaced by government. And so whereas I'm not one of those small government people, I think the government can do a lot of good work. I think when it comes to some of those mediating institutions and the family and the church, again, that's something that can't be replaced. And so it's something that has to be protected. And whether we agree with people or not, that you kind of have to let people make their choices in those areas. Uh, and so that's that's what's kind of has shaped me. Uh, I joke around on my podcast sometimes and I, I say, you know, because progressivism kind of continues to go to the left, I say that I'm a 2008 progressive, that I stopped going to the left or around that time. And so I'm open to, you know, critiquing both sides, but I have felt, and especially with the administration that's in there today, I have felt that the Democrats are are, are doing more good uh, than probably Republicans have been doing as of late. Sure, sure. So in terms of more, more recent news, I've noticed there are uh, two Black men who may not necessarily be known for their background in politics, but their voices are big uh, in terms of their platform because of their history with music. And I'm speaking of of Diddy and Kanye West. Uh, they had uh, somewhat differing views, but it really sparked a conversation that was already going. I would say the conversation of uh, black people 
and I'm, I'm some would call it being on the Democratic plantation. Uh, some would call it being blindly loyal to the Democratic Party. Uh, there was some critique that was coming uh, toward black people who were uh, voting Democratic. Uh, and there's also a reality that there are conservative black people as well. We're not a monolith in terms of our political ideology. So uh, as a refresher, you know, Diddy got a lot of flack for making a post pretty much saying that uh, we shouldn't blindly just vote Democratic. We should demand something for our vote and potentially withhold it uh, at this point in the election cycle. And then Kanye, more recently, in past, I guess, couple years, has had different moments where he's come to light to say that he's supporting Donald Trump and why we should. And he kind of gave a boost to Candace Owens', Candace Owens profile and so on and so forth. Uh, how would you respond to both of those situations and the general ideas that are being presented? Um, uh, and you can respond specifically to those incidences or just uh, commend the audience on co commend the audience on how you think is the best approach to look at uh, our current landscape and moving forward. Uh, Bakari, I'll start with you on that one. So I don't think and I don't think it's fair to analyze um, Kanye and um, Sean um, Puff in, in the same light. Um, Kanye is not a very well-read individual, and I, I think that Kanye is um, decently misguided. I made those I made those statements before. Um, I think Puff actually um, articulated a bit that many African Americans have, particularly African American males, when it comes to the Democratic Party which is that um, there has to be some black agenda, there has to be some items which you can point to, um, which we can hold elected officials accountable for. Um, I think that um, many people took Puff's words out of context, saying that he wasn't going to vote um, for any party or anybody, and, or he was going to vote for Donald Trump. I didn't see it as that, and I'm absolutely certain, having spoken to him, that that is not um, what he meant. In fact, what he's doing is something I think that's enlightening, which is pushing Joe Biden and pushing the Democratic Party to actually have an agenda for African-Americans. And after those comments came out, um, I believe it was in the works regardless, but after those comments came out, you have seen an agenda that has some uh, very actionable items in it for African-Americans from Joe Biden. I think um, I, I'm not quite sure um, where Kanye West falls in this other um, than to say that I believe he has a certain level of privilege um, in, in making uh, these assertions that allow him to support Donald Trump, a privilege that many black men and black people, people of color, immigrants, poor people in this country don't necessarily have. And so I, um, I can't disagree with Kanye West any more um, than I do. And I think that um, his rhetoric is extremely dangerous. Got it. Justin, what were your thoughts as all this unfolded? Yeah, it's been interesting. I guess I should first start by saying I, I don't know either of these guys. So, um, you know, people can say what they want to do. They have that, you know, they have the ability to make those type of statements. Uh, but I would say I would say this, you know, um, when you're in a position of influence, uh, I do think it's important that your um, the study that you've done, uh, the diligence and looking at the issues should be the equivalent of, at least the equivalent of the degree of influence that you have. 
Um, and so there are statements. I don't, I don't think anything is above critique. I think the Democratic Party needs to be critiqued. I think the Trump administration needs to be critiqued. All that, those things can be critiqued. There's a timing for it. Um, and I don't know that the timing was necessarily great on, on um, uh, Puffy's part. But, but again, that, that's something that people can look through. And if, if you're not going to vote or you're going to change your vote just based off that comment, um, you know, you probably need to do some, some more study and things of that nature yourself. I, I agree. I think Bakari points out something that was real that, you know, uh, Joe Biden very shortly after that statement was made, came out with a uh, black agenda. I think it was lift every voice. And uh, it was a very robust agenda that spoke to some of the issues that I would assume that Puff was getting at. Um, but I don't, I don't knock anybody for making comments. I think they can comment. I don't knock anybody for being critical of either party. But I think when you have influence, you do want to be as responsible with it as possible. So know that people are listening. Know that you should be studied, that, that you should have a grip on what you're talking about. As far as Kanye goes, I, I, think, I think he is mistaken and in a very serious way. And I don't know that he's seeing the whole political landscape. I mean, he, I'm not going to say that all of his... Um, his gripes or the issues that he may have are illegitimate. But when you look at the whole, I just don't think his analysis was uh, was, was very sharp or, or accurate. So I would disagree with, with that point of view. Again, he, ha he has the right to say it, and, and we have the right to, to make criticisms uh, if, if we see what he said as short-sighted, which I, I certainly did. Right. I think there are a variety of perspectives on what should be requested and how it should be done. Uh, and in re the reality is we are a black people here in the country, but it's not like we have weekly meetings to talk about our agenda and how to implement it. Um, everybody kind of is, is doing their own thing. And there are groups that work together, subgroups, but there's probably thousands of subgroups, all with different ideologies and uh, ideas of how to implement what the goals are. So in our limited scope and our limited influence on today, what would you say is uh, two things. What do we need? What should we be asking for? And then uh, how do you go, or, or, or I'm sorry, demanding or asking for, what is what should be the requirements uh, for a vote? So that I'm so, let me make that simple. The first question, what should we be requiring for our vote? And then two, how do you go about actualizing that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Bakari. <laughs> yeah, I see you're doing your best uh, Don Lemon uh, impersonation here, and I, I love it. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a really good question. Um, you know, I I, I would say that um, it, it's necessary now in in 2020 and going forward that individuals have an agenda that directly speaks to the core necessities and issues of, of African Americans. You asked a loaded question. Justin and I could probably sit here all day long and tell you and run down the policy points of <laughs> what African-Americans deserve, what those policies would look like, how we would formulate them, how we would get them passed, you know, big, bold, progressive ideals, um, a, a new deal for, for people of color, a new deal for immigrants, a new deal for low-income citizens. I will be very clear, though, with, with you, Malik, and Justin as well, because I believe he would ascribe to this as, as well. This is a, a Maynard Jackson, uh, Andy Young, a Marion Barry, a Julian Bond type ideal mm -hmm. in that you cannot, um, you cannot address or cure race-specific inequalities mm -hmm. with race-neutral policy. 
And what that means is that you cannot have these fundamental inequalities that people of color face every day in this country and attempt to implement policies that are rising tide lift all boats. And I think that you find a lot of well-meaning white moderates who fall on the Democratic side who believe that you can put forth a plan. The best example is uh, the PPP. And when you looked at the PPP, you saw uh, money for small businesses who were being affected in the age of corona. But you also saw that although devastation was happening in our communities, those dollars did not flow did not have a special place in our communities, and many Native American companies, black companies, um, et cetera, were left out. And so you cannot have these uh, race-neutral policy plans for race-specific inequalities. So that, when we're creating an agenda, so we're not sitting here until uh, you know uh, Thanksgiving, because I think that Justin and I could possibly do that when laying out policy, um, I think that those are the goalposts that we have to set. How do we actualize that? No one can afford to not vote. Um, also, I think that one of the dangers, dangerous precedents that was set in 2016 were some of my colleagues and friends, uh, they truly are friends, but they were wrong. And you can call your friends wrong, who made <laughs> points that somehow Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were the lesser two evils. Um, you, you simply cannot go down that path. Um, this is a binary choice that we have. This is the democracy that we live in, for better or for worse, um, for the warts that it may have. You, you have one of two people to vote for. And I don't really think that that is a, a, a true choice. Um, but I do think that we have to speak out. I think that what Sean Combs did was awesome. I think the voice and the agency that Justin uses is awesome. I think that all of us coming together because those of us who have the ability to have the ear of some of these policymakers have to make sure that we're screaming as loud as possible and uh, not giving them an out. Uh, the last example I'll, I'll give you is that I am very, very, very um, adamant about my belief that uh, the vice presidential choice in this election for the Democratic nominee has to be a black woman, period. And I'm utilizing my black platform to say such um, because I think that's necessary. It goes beyond symbolism, but it goes to actualizing a lot of those agenda items um, that we need to lift our communities up, up. And so that's my soapbox on on the black agenda, just giving you a framework whereby I think it's necessary that we fit the policy within. Thank you, Justin, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bakari, he, he hit it on the head. You know, if you look at American history, the discrimination was not race neutral. Uh, and so to, to kind of try to combat all those years of discrimination, racism, lynching and so on with race neutral policy when it comes to economics, education and so on, just isn't going to get it done. Uh, and I think that's a very important point to make. We have to make sure that we're, you know, we're paying attention to those things and that we hold people accountable. I think sometimes there's an assumption that, the Democratic Party is going to prioritize those things, but I've seen a lot of other issues that I don't necessarily agree with uh, as, as a more, you know, um, a moderate or sometimes conservative Democrat go before actually some of these issues dealing with race and dealing with the poor and dealing with class. So I'm, I'm with that all the way. I think these have to be um, policy prescriptions that speak directly to racial disparities, again, in education, jobs, uh, and so on.
So very important. I think, you know, the other things that we have to focus on, again, education is very important. What is the plan for education? We know brothers especially uh, have had struggles there because of the disparities in this country. Uh, you got to look at criminal justice. Now, where are people going to stand on criminal justice? When we talk about, you know, we know about the war on drugs. We know about COINTELPRO and all those things that cause mass incarceration. We know about the culture that we've seen so very recently that, uh, you know, causes uh, police brutality. These need to be addressed in real ways. And so I, I think you, you have to make sure that they're addressing those things and hold them accountable. I think we also have the tendency, uh, maybe this is on both sides of the aisle, that once we get somebody in office, we're just happy to have them there. And so whatever they do, we kind of leave them to their own devices. I think that's a terrible way to do politics. I don't care if it's your brother, your mother, or somebody you think is the greatest person in the world. Once they take that position, they have to be held accountable. And we can't just uh, leave anyone to their own devices. But I would end with this. You know, we make so much of this federal election, which is huge. And Bakar is actually, actually absolutely right. You have to vote. This is not something that you can skip out on. This is real and it has major consequences. But keep in mind that a lot of things are happening on a state and local level, too. Uh, and so don't ignore the state and local politics with all the issues that I named. Some of those issues are addressed on a state and local level, and it's not as partisan. Mm -hmm. And you may have a more direct impact on what's going on. You know, I just took a whole bunch of millennials to the Atlanta City Council to talk about housing, to talk about low income housing and making sure that Atlanta isn't a city that doesn't have any poor people in it. There are a lot of progressive cities that the only way poor people can live there is if they're living on the streets. So absolutely, we have to vote in this federal election. It's a major election with huge consequences. But don't forget the local and the state work that can be done. When we're talking about criminal justice, most people are in prison in state prisons, not federal prisons. So if we're just looking to the federal, then we're going to miss a whole lot of work that we can be doing on lower levels. Mm -hmm. So I want you guys to take two minutes or less on this. Uh, how would you respond to the brothers, to the black men that say, Trump is good for business. So they're looking to cast their vote that way. How would you, let's say we're in a barbershop <laughs> and dudes in the chair talking about he's planning on voting for Trump because he's good for business. How would you respond? Uh, Bakari, you go ahead and take that one. Look, I, I think it's time that we have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with, with some of our brothers um, and, and let them know that what they believe is good for business may not be a reality. Let them know that many of the, uh, many of the successes that Donald Trump is realizing as it comes with the economy um, prior pre, I mean, you know, we, we have what we call BC now in history. It, it, it's, it's before Corona because um, everything after Corona is a, is a little different. Um, but the economy that he's enjoying, B.C., before Corona, is an Obama economy. Um, and I think that it's necessary for people, one, to understand that. I also want people to understand that we can't set aside um, our own pocketbooks. Um, we have to be in the framework. And this, Justin and I are um, very similarly cut from this cloth um, because we both understand the struggle and the toil um, from whence our people have emerged, mainly because of our Southern roots and understanding um, me being from South Carolina and also down in Atlanta. I think that Justin would, would agree um, that we cannot forget um, the plight and struggle of those who fought back um, bigotry, xenophobia, and racism, and who realized that um, sometimes it's about a greater good. 
and that Donald Trump is not representative of what uh, the country that we want our children to be able to grow up in. Malik, I'll tell you this. Um, I was recently on the um, uh, uh, the Daily Show with, with Trevor Noah, and Trevor is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And we were having a conversation, and I told Trevor that one of my goals, um, my number one goal probably, is I'm the father of, of uh, 16-month-old twins, and I want my children to be able to be free. And... I say that um, with all sincerity, giving those words life, um, because I'm tired of, of not dealing and tackling with these issues of race and having someone in the White House who throws flames on that those fire. And although you may not be excited, um, you may not be in love with Joe Biden, I can tell you that his empathy and beating back the bigotry of, of what Donald Trump represents is necessary. Now, racism was here, um, let, let's be extremely clear, before Donald Trump is gonna be here after Donald Trump. But I do believe um, that our country deserves better. And I think that um, we have to do a better job on the local level. We have to do a better job of being active and our voices being heard. And black men, uh, you know, it, it's time because for far too long, both parties have really not paid us attention. It's time for us to speak up in a unified voice and let people know what we need to survive in this country and hold people accountable. But I think that that can best be done when we kind of uh, pull arms together and beat back bigotry, racism, and xenophobia, everything I think that's represented from the White House today. Thank you for that. Justin? Yeah, Malik, first I would make the case probably that uh, Trump isn't necessarily good for business. I think there's a, there's a case to be made there on the long term that that wouldn't be good. But even if we disagree on that point, me and my brother, who's Trump's brother, disagree on that point, I would also point out that your vote isn't just for you. Right. And so, you know, me and Macari are in the professional class. Maybe some of the tax cuts could have fucked our pockets a little bit. But what about the people that it's hurting? You know, one of the things that shaped me early on in life is um, my mother, something my mother said to me. I can't remember exactly what happened. I was probably 10 or 12. Something went on at the, at the school where one of the teachers or administrators had mistreated me. And, um, and she kind of had to go and straighten some people out, which was rare because she usually took the side of the teacher or the administrator, so it had to be bad. But after she went up there, she said to me, she said, Justin, I did that not just so people would do right by you, but so that people would do right by that next kid who may not have somebody to stand up for them, whose parent might not be paying attention. I had to do that to make sure that they thought twice. And that really stuck with me because I think at the end of the day, when I vote, uh, when I go out and advocate, I can't just do that for me. I can't just do that for me and my tribe. I have to do it for, for all people. And I have to be looking at what kind of consequences my vote has outside of my family, uh, within my community and beyond that. And so uh, that's why I think that's a, a short-sighted way to look at politics. Uh, I, I think it, it would come back to bite even some of the people who think it's, it's a good idea. And so, you know, we would just have to have that longer term conversation where we're not kind of just looking uh, at this maybe zero sum uh, issue where we think we may benefit in the short term. We got to look about we got to look at how it helps everybody, because as we advocate, we can't just do it uh, for our family or ourselves individually. Understood. So we're we're coming close to the end of our time, but I have to throw this one out there and this might be the. Uh, the one to, to cause a stir, to say the least. I think, realistically speaking, I've been in a lot of different settings. I'm originally from Southeast Washington, D.C. 
worked in diversity in higher education in conservative white universities. Uh, was in Oklahoma for a while, as well as Southern California. So I've seen Black people in a lot of different spaces. And I've, I've come to realize something that I might not have noticed had I stayed my whole life in Washington, D.C., and that's, once again, the, the moral and political diversity of Black people, specifically Black men. And while it's clear uh, and overstated that many of us uh, share concern with the current administration due to racial issues and so on and so forth, that's understood. And for some, it's just not a possibility to vote Republican in the upcoming election. But something I've become aware of in my time in other spaces is also there are a, a group of Black people, uh, Justin, you mentioned uh, Black churchgoers. Uh, there are Black Christians who do have a moral issue with the Democratic Party as it relates to abortion. Uh, there are some that are single-issue voters. So when it comes to this upcoming election, there are some that may abstain because they see Im uh, immorality on both sides. And, uh, you know, whether it be racism or abortion, that could keep someone from voting completely. How would you respond to, uh, once again, putting us back in the barbershop, how would you respond to that? I'll start with you, Justin, and, and close with you, Bakari. Can we give it about one minute, 30 seconds <laughs> per person? I know that's very short with what no, that's, a, there, that's but, an easy answer. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'll start with Justin first, go to Bakari, and then we'll, we'll close it down. So, so I would affirm that the Democratic Party has some issues, especially when it comes to abortion. Um, the fact that we went from, you know, wanting it to be rare to being something that it's celebrated is not something that I, that I will overlook. But I always, when I get that, and I get that a lot, I say, I don't, I don't know how you can have a moral issue with the Democratic Party and not also have one uh, with the Republican Party, especially the person representing the Republican Party. Uh, I think when we vote on a single issue, we have to realize that no issue is on an island. And so when we just focus on one issue, we're actually missing other issues that may lead to that issue, you know, may lead to the issue that we're focused on. So when we don't look at how we're taking care of women, when we don't look at the maternal mortality rate in states like Alabama and Mississippi that actually lead to some of the issues that we care about, we're missing the issue. Uh, and so that's why, you know, single issue voting is usually not something that you want to do. I think it's, it's, it's something that I will stay away from and try to focus on the whole of it. That isn't to belittle or minimize the, the issue of abortion and some of the, uh, I think, extreme stances that the Democrats have taken on it. But I don't see, and many Black Christians who do have a problem with it, don't see it as being one issue. And we see a cultural side to it as well, where there are ways that we can fight it culturally and not just... Um, through Congress or the presidency or the courts. Understood. Bakari, I know you're, you're ready to go. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm, this question is tough. I was actually uh, <laughs> thinking about it because um, I, I'm always um, heartened to remember that faith without works is dead, right? I think it's a scripture that we all know extremely well, uh, that we all turn to. Um, and I, I recall... Um, uh, Dr. King's best piece of literature, which is a letter from the Birmingham jail. I don't think that there's any question that that's his best writing. And when I analyze a letter from the Birmingham jail, I'm always reminded that his, um, his writing was to other black ministers. 
um, other black ministers who were hesitant at the progress that he was pushing for, hesitant uh, at the methods that he was taking, hesitant to get involved, hesitant to quote unquote rock the boat, didn't want him a part of that. And I, I say all of that to say that I think that when we're having a conversation about morality, I'm not sure that this is a close competition between the parties per se, especially kind of to harken back to Justin's point, um, especially with the, 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 the team captain um, for the Republican Party right now in, in the White House. I think abstaining is dangerous. And I think that um, when you look at the plight of our people, I think that one not exercising that right to vote and making what is a dis difficult decision for some, it's not, I don't, I, I, I don't mean to be condescending um, and I'm not trying to be, so I apologize if it comes off that way, but this is an easy vote for me to make. And I do understand the struggle that some may have and that struggle that is rooted in morality. But I'm also saying that if that is your cause, then you also must have a heart that shows a level of empathy for others, knowing that others will suffer if you do vote the wrong way or not vote at all. Definitely, I, I get your point. So uh, we could continue this conversation obviously forever. I really would like to, but obviously, you know, we have a, a schedule. So I wanna close out with this. Some may have been listening tonight and may have thought, you know, I like the way that guy thinks. And coincidentally, uh, we all are releasing books this year. Uh, and people now have an opportunity to to pick the brains of the people they've heard from more today uh, and get more context for who you are, how you think, and what you're hoping to see uh, in today's society. So, Bakari, uh, My Vanishing Country, I know will be out soon. Could you give us a little bit more about what your hopes are for this book? So, yeah, My Vanishing Country. Uh actually this image that's right behind me of uh, this little boy um, who is um, uh, seeing out that that image is me. And I didn't mean to let you guys see the back of my neck here in the back of my head here, but that's, you know, how brothers are when we haven't been to the barbershop in quarantine. Uh, but my book is uh, one that I hope you enjoy. Um, it is um, about my life that's bookended by tragedy from the Orange Rick Massacre to uh, the Charleston Massacre. Um, for me, it's a, it's a love story to the South. It's a love story to rural America. It's a love story to black people. It's a love story to my wife and to my children. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's a very um, timely piece, I do believe, um, dealing with Ahmaud Arbery and the coronavirus showing the, 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 the racial disparities we have in healthcare. Um, and we talk about these issues of being black in America. And, um, you know, the end goal is for us all to be free and for us to leave um, a better uh, America for our children to inherit than we have. And so I hope people give it a chance. I know Justin's a great writer down there who hangs out with amazing people as well. And so I hope Justin's able to use um, my comments as saying, please be very supportive of his efforts in Atlanta. Um, please be very supportive of his writings as well, um, because it's very difficult for black men, especially to be um, speaking out, utilizing our platform and utilizing it as such. And so I'm grateful for his efforts. I'm grateful for you, Malik, um, this effort. And My Vanishing Country is on sale now. Um, so just please give it a chance. That's all I can ask. Got it. Justin, compassion and conviction. Tell us more. 
Well, first, I'd like to thank Bakari just for this conversation. Uh, it's just thoughtful comments. Uh, and the next thing I'll be doing as soon as I get off here is, is buying that book. So I, I would encourage everybody to, to do the same. Uh, he's always a thoughtful brother holding it down on CNN. So I just wanted to thank him for that. Uh, so, yeah, uh, compassion and conviction. Uh, I've been traveling the country, going to churches, going to universities, Christian universities, and anywhere I could go telling Christians that I think it's time for us to have a paradigm shift. And really the end campaign in general, Michael Ware, Chris Butler, we believe that it's time for Christians to have a paradigm shift with how we think about politics. We think that uh, within Christianity and within our society, I guess just in general, there's a false dichotomy. And, and, and it's that you're either for social justice or you're for more order. You're either about the compassion that we see in politics or you're about the conviction. And when I read the gospel, we think it's about both compassion and conviction, social justice, and um, moral order. We don't see that false dichotomy or that binary in the gospel. We see it coming together, and we actually see that you really can't have justice without moral order and, and vice versa. And so that's really what this book is about. Uh, compassion and conviction is the end campaign's framework for faithful civic engagement. We don't believe that you can just follow behind a party. We don't think that you can just follow behind an ideological tribe and be a faithful Christian. Because when you're just following behind someone else, you're not framing the issues for yourself. And Christians, in so many ways, one of the reasons that we have, I think, so many white evangelicals that are just going behind Trump and voting for Trump is they've allowed things that are not Christian to frame the issues for them. And so this book is helping Christians frame the issues for ourselves. We start very simply with why should Christians engage? Uh, and then we go in the relationship between church and state. We look at partisanship. We look at partnerships. We look at race, race and politics and how all that fits together. So on July 21st, we will be releasing our book, Compassion and Conviction. My co-authors are Chris Butler and Michael Ware. And we're really proud of this book and excited to get it out uh, into the public square. First things first, rest in peace, suckle fear. For real, you the only father that I ever knew. One of the most memorable moments from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was when Will broke down in Uncle Phil's arms after his father reappeared. Made promises, broke them, and then disappeared again. Will asked the famous question, How come you don't want me, man? Baby Boy depicted a young man named Jody who in his adult life struggled to grow out of adolescence and put away childish things. Then there's the classic Boys in the Hood, which contrasts the life of Trey, who has a father present, with his friends Ricky and Doughboy, who don't. Their stories end very differently. Whether it's caused by an absentee father or growing up in an under-resourced neighborhood, the trauma is there and art that reflects it is profitable. But what is being done to help those boys and men pick up the pieces? Who is there to support those that are living this reality currently? The Whole Brother mission seeks to equip men to be whole in every area of life. Wholeness isn't perfection, but it is optimum health. We believe we can get there by focusing on our three core areas, the head, the heart, and the hands. The head is mental health. We have to get our minds right. To that end, we offer access to licensed professional counselors and therapists to our members, free of charge. The heart is emotional maturity. It's very hard to deal with the emotions of another if I haven't taken the time to process through my own. We also offer access to life coaches and mentors to our members, free of charge. The hands represent professional advancement. Life is always a bit easier when your bills are paid. We've created an online life skills program that helps our members think through practical steps to build entrepreneurship, pursue higher education, and financial literacy. 
We're always looking for partners to help us create resources that normalize the conversation around men pursuing serious self-assessment. This is all made possible through giving. We ask that you join us in our mission. Thank you.